Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone for getting in contact regarding our last programme on the state of the Irish rental sector. You can still listen back to our podcast on newstalk.com or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we're turning our attention to the Irish mortgage market. If you're looking for a mortgage or you're thinking about applying for one, we want to inform you about your financial options today. To discuss, we're joined in studio by our panel, Frank Conway, financial advisor and founder of MoneyWiz, Carl Dieter from the Irish Mortgage Brokers, and also Jill Kirby, for the personal finance journalist with the Sunday Business Post. My thanks to you all for joining us today. Um, there's no end to the amount of advice and tips that people want in terms of going about getting a mortgage and switching mortgages and how do I get a mortgage and all of that kind of thing and we are going to turn our attention to that in a few moments. But we did have more news this week on the banking situation and I suppose the kind of the tough new mortgage rules that have been brought in to, pre- to prevent a repeat of the lending bubble from back in, a, in, in the good times and the Celtic Tiger. Can I just ask you first of all Frank Conway just what's your view? Well I think broadly the rules that were brought in a number of years ago were to create stability and one of the problems we had kind of up to that point was there was changing rules almost every year in terms of actually the stamp duties that apply to properties, the mortgage lending amounts and so forth. I think what we need now is stability. And the rules generally are, you know, you have to have a 10% deposit for a first-time buyer. That's a rule. You, uh, they will, banks will lend around three and a half times of the salaries of the individuals. And there's exceptions around that. But what we need now, and I think there's been calls perhaps maybe to move away from those, uh, first-time buyers want stability, number one. They want predictability. And they want to understand, for example, that when they're saving to buy a property, that the rules aren't going to change. Because one of the things that happens with mortgage lending is it happens with interest rates. When interest rates either go up or down, it changes people's behavior. If there's a risk, for example, that the rules are going to change around lending guidelines, for example, the microprudential rules, people tend to hold off and that distorts the market. And one of the other things that's out there this year is the help to buy that's due to end, mm. of, the, end of the year, for example. You know, people will uh, bring that into the considerations. And I do a lot of work with first-time buyers. So I think from the central bank's perspective is trying to say that we're going to have a period of stability and predictability in terms of actually planning to save to buy a property. And I think that's a good thing. How important is that kind of stability and confidence in the market, uh, Carl Dieter? Well, it, it certainly makes for outcomes that people in general are happier with. But the whole thing about stable markets is they tend to actually destabilize themselves naturally. So if prices are going up, people tend to crowd in. If prices are falling, people tend to run away. And I don't know that we've ever really had a period in Irish history where we had this you know, stable market that was performing well. And that's looking back through the foundation of the state until now. Housing was always in fluctuation. And indeed, right back into the 1700s, because I've worked on historical studies looking at that, it would be a really great thing if we could finally uh, stop the the amplified ups mm. and downs, the, the peak and trough, and get something that was more like rolling hills, I suppose. But How do the, you do uh, that, though? It's really difficult because it involves doing things. Like, everyone wants the cure, but they don't want the medicine. And the way you do it is through higher property tax, through taxing land, which, you know, all land. And that means every vested interest in this country from farmers to, to mm. homeowners would be against what you're looking to do. Uh, those would be things that would help to make a difference. You would also have to make a decision that if social housing is truly a societal problem that everybody pays. And at the moment, we don't really have it working like that. Really, the buyers of new homes quite often 
are, are kind of subsidizing new social housing. And if you had it levied as a property tax so that you build in good times and bad, we'd have a steadier supply of housing coming in. And by doing that and keeping rents affordable, you then become, uh, you come to a place where people have choices. Because okay. at the moment, if you're paying 1600 in rent, that's the same as a 400,000 euro mortgage over 30 years. And we're telling people you can't do reckless lending or reckless borrowing, but they're out there doing what is the equivalent of reckless renting. They're actually destroying their future wealth by not buying a home. And, and, and that, to me, is a concern. Okay, can I bring you in just mm-hmm. on that, particularly in that last point mm-hmm. by Carl, uh, Jill Kirby? I think it's pretty horrific now, as, as Carl says, paying an average of €1,600 Euros for rent in Dublin, uh, somewhat less naturally in, in around the country, is starving people of the essential savings that they need to get on that property ladder. There's no question about that now. I mean, to uh, you know, and, and mm. God forbid you also happen to start a family at the same time or you already have a child. You're also looking at, you know, very expensive crash fees and things. So it's, it's incredibly difficult with the rents at the levels that they are. But I think there's one kind of good sign. And I know, I'm, I'm not sure if the old theory that when uh, fixed rates are set, it means that the lenders believe that the variable rates are going to come down again. But... Um, you know, I was just looking at the the fixed rate offers that are out there, um, and I think a lot of advisors, and perhaps Carl and, and Frank will will attest to this, are recommending that first time buyers consider taking out a fixed rate loan. Um, Bank of Ireland just announced one a ten year for what three point something. I mean, it's it's incredibly low. And I'm I go back you know thirty odd years as a house as a homeowner when our first mortgage was eleven uh, percent. Uh, there really weren't f- fixed rates available. Um, it came down pretty quickly to eight, and then it went up sort of crazy for a very brief period. But um, if I had had a fixed rate offer of, mm. say, five or six percent, which was the average, I remember looking at some uh, statistics, the average uh, in the United States, I think, in Canada was about six percent for nearly 40 or 50 years. I mean, that would have been the average. So anything under that, if that had been offered to us back in 1986, we would have jumped at okay. it. And, and I would have kept, you know, either a, 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 at least a 10-year, but, you know, we, we have no experience here of, of 25 or 30-year fixed rates, which they do in North America can and I, in Europe. Can I just, just want to, on a very kind of a simplistic level for people that are kind of starting out on, on this process, and it, it can be quite complicated to get your head around it, but fixed versus the variable rates. Just talk us through them, Frank. So generally, the fixed rate is, you know, you, you're fixed for one year or two years or three or five years, 10 years. AIB uh, came up with some offers in the last couple of weeks. And that is that the uh, the payment is fixed for the individual. There's guarantee of what that repayment is. Now, there's certain problems around that because here in Ireland, you would have a prepayment penalty if you actually moved out of that. So the issue always that comes up with first-time buyers week in, week out is should I fix or should I go variable? The variable rate floats. In other words, if the European Central Bank increases the interest rate. So what we had at one point is we had two types of variable rates out there. We had the tracker rate and we had the standard variable rate. The tracker rate lasted for about maybe eight or nine years, you know, was Bank of Scotland came into the Irish market, and that tracked the European Central Bank rate at a certain set margin. So that floated, so the, the repayment could go up and down mm. at any particular point. There was another issue then around the standard variable rate, and that was where the banks themselves had the option of actually increasing the rate. So we used to have the anomaly, for example, when the European Central Bank was slashing interest rates when the credit crunch happened back in 08, 09, that some banks weren't passing those rates along. So variable rates float, the repayment can go up and down over a period of time, the fixed rate period is fixed for whatever, 1,000 or 1,500 euro during that period. Once you come out of that, if it's fixed for five years, 
then you have the option of either perhaps fixing or going variable again. There's a couple of options given to the individual. The big difference is that if you come out of the fixed rate mortgage at any particular point, you're likely to have a prepayment penalty. So that's the issue that will happen for most people. And will they want to take that gamble? And the issue I would always say to somebody is, if you plan on selling the property for five years, maybe fix it five years because it's not going to make a mm. lot of difference. But what if that's your, your forever house, Carl Dieter? What, 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 what do you think is the kind of the, the safer option? I suppose something that's easy to understand is go for what's cheapest. Um, and at the moment, fixed rates are the cheapest. Like, if you were to look at money, money is not different no matter where it comes from. I mean, we're all sitting in a studio and everyone has a glass of water in front of them and putting any cooties I might have aside. The water in your glass is the same as the water in my glass. So, <clears throat> you know, it's really just a case of which <clears throat> one, if water was money, is going to come at the best price. Now, you've got to match that best price with some of the concerns that Frank just raised about the, the assuredness of that price staying the same. You don't have it with a variable rate. But at the moment, pricing is actually upside down. The variable rates are really high. The fixed rates are really low. That's actually, that's that's like walking along the street and seeing a dog walking on its head. It's it's the reverse of what we've seen through all of history. Because it, it strikes always, me as being a little bit of a gamble. like. But going on a fixed rate? Well, just deciding which one you're going to go for because... Mm. Well, it, it can be. But you see, the thing is, like if you sign up to a fixed rate and you're happy with the price, Frank did mention a, a break penalty without getting too technical into bank funding at the moment uh, because of European rules on how break fees are calculated and the way that interest rates are there actually isn't a break fee and if you fix in at a really low rate and rates go up your break fee your break fee tends to become nullified where you get hit with bad break fees is if you lock in say at 5% and rates drop and you you want to break down to a lower rate then the break fees okay. become really significant okay, so I, just fix just and get a cheap yeah. one can I just come in here though I mean the, the, the fixed rates at the moment, uh, sorry, it was, yeah, I'd be not Bank of Ireland, are three point something for a 10-year fixed rate. The idea cheap. of, it's incredibly cheap. And if you are sitting in front of the bank manager and your partner or whoever, and you've agreed this amount and you've gone through all of your budget and you realize, yes, we can afford this. And they've also put in, you know, the risks of maybe interest rates. Obviously, they're not going to go up if you're on a fix. But if they did, could you even afford one or 2% extra uh, charge yes you can well then that fixed rate is an extra bargain but more to the point and this is something that really can't be emphasized enough people are experiencing rent increases if they're not in rent pressure zones and if they're in newer properties that don't come under the rent pressure zone rules that can be 5 10 15 percent mm. extra every year and even the four percent increase that's that's tied into the rent pressure zone rules yeah, it's. I mean, I these days I think that's kind of reasonable given what what you could be paying or what you used to pay, but you're not going to face any of that it, with a five or a ten year fixed rate at three point something. Yeah. This is peace of mind okay. that you're buying. You wanted to come that back you'll never get as a renter, Frank. You wanted to come back in just on some of those points. Yeah, and the, the, I guess the question always for anybody, you know, so back to Carl's point, the question for anybody when it's being fixed and variable is which is going to cost you more and. Broadly, they're roughly the same. You know, you're going to hold loads of whole pile of money right now. Uh, fixed very, very cheap. I would tell any first-time buyer, grab that one and go for it. You know, uh, variable rates aren't going to come down anymore. You know, they're they're probably you know they're set where they are. They're likely to go up at some point in the future. So it gives you surety of repayment, and that is something that's very very important because when you're buying a property, 
the, the, the last thing you want is uncertainty <coughs> for any mm. particular yeah, period of time. The certainty, I would imagine, the long term certainty is. And the cheapness of those. So the dilemma used to be, for example, that it was very expensive to get a fixed rate mortgage. Mm. So one of the issues often in France or in the United States was you could fix with no break penalties for quite low money. And that, you know, you could actually switch out of that if there was a better deal on a variable That's rate. Right, you can negotiate them. Here, again. that yeah. dynamic was often very different. So you will have, and for the for, uh, listeners, the issue for some of them is they will have higher fixed rate mortgages. So the question there is, what is the cost of breaking all that? But for first-time buyers, very cheap mortgage, uh, it's cost-effective, go for it, absolutely. Just in a kind of a fairly general sense, just talk us through the state of the Irish mortgage market at the moment, still, Kirby, just in terms of kind of where we're at, <laughs> like approvals, um, first-time buyers, who's getting mortgages and who's kind of buying houses? Well, first-time buyers are getting mortgages. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the most recent statistics from the, the bank of, uh, the central bank, it shows that it's, it, they're on the increase. More, more and more first-time buyers are getting mortgages. There is quite a lot of activity out there. And that reflects, I think, the general economy. More people have jobs. Um, pay is actually going up. I mean, we're, we have a relatively strong economy. There's no question about that. And there's certainly plenty of demand because there is a supply problem. So it's it's kind of a buoyant and healthy market. And, and uh, uh, Carl would certainly know about that more than I would. He has people coming in, you know, day by day. So, you know, you're, you're I think the biggest problem, and Frank and I were talking about that earlier, <clears throat> is finding the right house, is, is, you know, getting that property that is suitable for you, not having to stand in a queue waiting overnight or bringing a sleeping bag so along to try and find the is place. Is it more about actually getting the property than it is about getting the mortgage well, in terms of the difficulties? I don't know. I mean, what's, Frank Well, there's a couple of things. Actually, you asked about the numbers. The numbers are actually really interesting right now because if we look at mortgage lending, and this goes back to 1970, uh, in 2018, there was a roughly eight, uh, 38,000 mortgages drawn down, and that was first-time buyers, second-time buyers, and property investors. There's two other categories of mortgages out there. First-time buyers actually dominate the market. That's the overwhelming number of first-time buyer mortgages out there. But we're at around 1988 to 1992 levels in terms of overall mortgage drawdown. So the market is slowly coming back. We peaked in 2006 with roughly 111,000 mortgages. There were other mortgages out there as well for switcher and for top-ups, and those are what we call extra, there isn't a, 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 a title deed drawn down on those mm. two. The main measures are first-time buyers, second-time buyers. And we're still roughly at, roughly at 1988 to 1992 levels and we're doing roughly the same level of lending. So the market's come back, but it is still a challenge to get a mortgage. And the other issue, obviously, is the, the supply. We've had a lot of lenders that left the market as well. And then we've had the microprudential rules. We've got capital requirements at the banks themselves. So banks are just being very cautious in terms of who they're lending to. Um, so one of the points I always make to first-time buyers is the market hasn't recovered where it was any by any shake. You know, what we're seeing is just still a very conservative numbers in terms of overall lending. So, But the other issue is supply, you know, and you have a lot of people who are still in properties who are near ne negative equity or just above equity and for them to move they're going to have to have a larger amount of equity in the property so there's a there's a disconnect in the market in terms of the supply that's out there carl dieter uh, i think when we spoke about the high rents as well you have to remember that that also attracts a different kind of buyer who doesn't need a mortgage so you'd have a, a large mm. number of institutional buyers mm. so we're seeing cases uh, regularly uh, where 300 apartments are bought all by the same buyer or they're being built where they will never go for sale and that's being supported by those high rents and it puts people in a situation where you've got to think about it like this. If you rent a house or buy a house, you both get to live in the house. But the difference between a buyer paying, say, 1600 and a renter paying 1600 is that within that 1600 rent, that all goes towards using the house. Within the mortgage part, 
if you had 400,000 euro borrowed at 3%, the actual rent cost, because in that case, you're actually renting the money in order to purchase the house, is 1,000 a month. The other 600 euro in your payment is actually savings. Mm-hmm. It goes towards your <clears throat> wealth, towards your equity. And even if the property market never changed a single penny, if it didn't go up or down at all, it just stayed completely stagnant, then in 30 years' time, you would have an asset worth 400000 that you got to live in all that time, whereas the renter doesn't get mm. that. But the high rents that we have here are actually changing the type of buyer. And that means that first-time buyers are sometimes bidding Price against out. the council. Mm-hmm. They're bidding against against nobody. They don't even get a chance to bid because everything is being bought. It will increase supply. And it, I, I want to say I'm a believer in institutional landlords because we need a professional class. We need more homes. They definitely deliver that. But it is a really tricky time to, to be out yeah. there trying and, to buy a home. And, and that's what's really interesting, I think, at the moment in 2019, when you look at the mortgage market, it's the makeup. It's all of the various different stakeholders that are involved in the mortgage market. And I suppose anecdotally, you know, you often hear about the fact that it's the cash buyers of the people that are able to purchase houses. But as you mentioned, Frank, when you kind of look at this, the recent statistics, first time buyers, they're, they're getting mortgages like... Yeah, they're getting them at lower numbers. And, you know, there's a lot of questions then, I suppose, in terms of, you know, buying a property. We tend to look in Ireland in terms of the cost of owning property. But my own case, when I bought my first home, it was actually in Rhode Island. But we were paying $7,000 a year in property tax. And that was not an exclusive area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the additional costs on that, you know, if you look in terms of the UK, for example, the, the, the rent, uh, the taxation, the property tax on those properties was much higher. So Ireland, in terms of owning the property itself, is actually quite reasonable. It's not that expensive. The cost is actually buying the actual property itself, the three or 400,000, or what you call very little. But we have these arguments all the time with you know, US homeowners, and they'll mm. say, oh my God, it's really expensive here. I'll say, yeah, but you put a lot of money into the taxation on that property, which you never see, and that goes into schools and lots of other things out there. So the issue always is, what's the total cost of buying? And the question ultimately is, is it a good? Uh, is there a good reason to buy? And there's four pillars of building personal financial security. That is, have a rainy day fund, buy a home and try and pay it off quickly, uh, put enough money into protection, and pay into the pension. And for some people who may say, "I'll never buy," I'll say, <clears throat> then actually redirect some of that money into the pension structure. Okay, Karen Dieter, I think you wanted to come in on a few of those. Yeah, Frank is making a really what I think is one of the important points about housing, and it is that kind of that lifetime wealth effect. What we are seeing is a reprofiling of that. So in 2012, I have some Banking Payment Federation figures here. In 2012, uh, households that earned less than 50,000 between whoever the people were in them constituted about 45% of buyers in Dublin. Okay, so that was kind of real, regular Mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. buying homes in Dublin, almost half the market. That same group of people who earned that amount of money uh, by 2018 constituted about 7% to 8% of the market. It's a massive, massive drop. And the renters Well, this, this is the point, mm. is it's that kind of gentrification effect <clears> means <throat> that the people who were buying houses who were just really average now either have to go further away or not buy at all. Okay. So it's a case of long commute or reckless so renting. So when we look through, Carl, your 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 um your columns there in terms of the figures in the Bank and Federation, how much of that is to do with the new regulations that were brought in by the central bank in terms of the deposit, et cetera, requirements? Not a lot because the, the the rules came in in 2014. The decline had started before that because property prices had started to rise. I don't actually think the central bank rules made that much of a difference. We still had very aggressive price appreciation. People are saying, oh, it's working now. I think we're just seeing the middle of a cycle. The people still have to live somewhere, so they're just making decisions to be renters. And instead of taking mortgages, you're seeing institutional money come in. But there is a frustration 
where if you can say to someone, oh, we won't let you borrow a mortgage where you have to repay 1500 because that's reckless, but you can be stuck paying 1800 mm-hmm. when there's no central bank to protect you from the from the rental market, and, and you're actually destroying your future wealth. And that's that's where I think the unfairness comes in. It's a, it's a very hard conversation to have with someone to say, look, I know you're paying more than that now, and we all know you can afford it, but if you wanted to borrow the money with a similar payment, the answer is no. It's almost like telling someone that, you know, you've shown yourself to be good and fit for a job, but you're just not getting it. Jill Kirby. I think it's important, though, to, to kind of see where we are now <clears throat> and accept that some people are simply not going to be able to get onto the property ladder under these rules without this huge new source of supply. And I think it would be really important. I, I think it's really important for the government to start looking at the kind of security of tenure that can be achieved by renters um, that that buyers already have. Um, as as Carl was saying, when you buy a property, you're paying a certain amount to 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 get that money, but, but you're also building up equity. We only talked about and that actually in our program on re- on renting last week. About a one would one way to address this issue be to look at a kind of a long term fixed rental agreement that gives some absolutely. kind of security Listen, tenure. I, you know, my own personal experience as a young person living in Canada and Montreal is that my parents were renters for nearly their entire marriage. Five children, my grandfather, my parents. There were you know, eight of us at one time, living in rented accommodation, big duplexes, big apartments. Uh, Montreal was a very continental, uh, unlike, you know, other places Mm. in Canada, but a very continental city in which you got long-term leases. Now, we moved probably every five years just because the growing family needed more space. But I still know people that these aren't fixed rents, but they are are long-term rental leases that you get. And they can be same people have lived in the same very nice accommodation for 10, 15, 20 years. There are escalator clauses built into their lease. You know, in the same way that we have it with the rent pressure zones here. It's 4% at the moment. In Montreal, it was typically 2 or 3%. Every year, your rent went up. And that was accepted. And you also had a lot more responsibilities to the upkeep of your flat and your building than people do here. Although I've noticed um, some friends who are renting are saying that their own landlords are now saying, if you want us to come out and change light bulbs that have gone out or there's a problem with the... You know, you've got uh, a leak in the mm. kitchen sink. It's going to cost you 50 quid because that's what we do. So people are now saying, you know, <clears throat> if they're happy there um, and how many people are really happy in their rented accommodation here. But my mother always had the man, my father being <clears throat> not very useful at these sort of things. We had a handyman who came in and did all the repairs, small repairs, mm. not not if okay. the windows had to be replaced. And that's what we need here for renters because I think we there's, there's no going back from being you know, 20, 30, 40% of the city being rented now and everybody owning homes. I just it don't actually, think that's though, going to last, happen. The last Probably. 300 years in Dublin, there was no ownership market for most of it. If you look at the 1700s, the 1800s, the first half of the 20th century, nobody owned homes. You rented them. So what they used to do, certainly in the 1800s, was you would have a 30-year a, a tenancy and say if it was everybody in this room, we would all sign that tenancy and a survivor, if assuming everybody else died after 30 years, would have a renewal right within that. Mm-hmm. But people didn't own homes. The whole idea of home ownership is a kind of a, the last 60, 70 years. But it seems to be something I think that's quite uniquely Irish as well. 
No, no it's not. No, no it's I mean, not. you know, home ownership is pretty. I mean, it's it's more pervasive in Hungary. It's more pervasive in parts of Italy. It's more Romania, pervasive in many other countries. So I think we have this myth. I think Ireland, there's been a very interesting history. And, you know, Carl's point, that's why we did have a revolution in the <laughs> 19, you know, in the, uh, um, from the 1800s on, you know. So that's why people wanted to own property because we had a very different system, you know. And there are, you know, there's legacies from that. But, you know, broadly... In terms of trying to build some personal wealth, the issues I would always say to first-time buyers is try not to overbuy the property. And that's very easy for me to say that because at some point it's going to be an asset that you probably can't dip into. Now, there is the fair deal scheme. There used to be reverse mortgages, but try to manage that. But today, in today's market, okay. where there is a supply issue. That's yeah. the problem. Just, I'm going to just take a very short break. There's a couple of issues I want to pick up on in just a moment. But you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more from our panel in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the second part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're focusing today on the Irish mortgage market and we're looking at how you go about applying and actually getting and drawing down a mortgage. Our panel still with us, the founder of MoneyWiz and financial advisor Frank Conway, Carl Dieter from Irish Mortgage Brokers and all also personal finance journalist with the Sunday Business Post, Jill Kirby. My thanks to you all for staying with us today. Just before the ad break, we were kind of talking about, I suppose, the buoyancy of the mortgage market and the supply issue. And that's really really what a huge problem is here, Carl, because even from the stats that we've been looking at today and the figures, young people are getting, young couple are getting mortgages, but then they're left sitting in this kind of limbo situation where they can't afford what's out there to buy. Yeah, and I don't have an easy answer for people in that situation. I'd love to say, like, it's all great and things will work out, but it's, look, busted property markets are like a broken heart. They just, they take time to mend and there's just no... There's no way to leapfrog ahead of a situation that is designed to be slow. So if you look at the way that we operate our property market, I have a little brother in Arkansas, and he can get a housing permit in a week. If he wants to build up a block of apartments, he can get the permits for that in a month. Unless someone has an actual serious legal reason, they have to initiate proceedings through a court to stop him from doing it. And so they don't have a housing shortage there. Now, people will argue and they say, oh, well, they've got sprawl, they've got this, they've got that. They don't have a housing shortage and I'll address it on that point only. In Dublin, if you want to build something, before you even get your planning permission, you're looking at about 18 months if it's anything of significance because you're automatically going to be looking at going to onboard Planala and all these other things. So societally, we all agree in general that we want housing, but in particular, when it comes into your back door, everybody jumps up and okay. down and says no. Let me just, before we go on to the drawing down and getting and getting mortgage ready and all of that, just on those kind of supply points, just mm-hmm. Jill and Frank, if I can ask you both <clears throat> just for your views. Mm-hmm. Jill Kirby. I, I, I totally agree with uh, with Carl. We have a problem, a planning problem in this country. We have a nimbyism problem. Uh, I know personally a, um, a couple of couples with rather large gardens, lots of trees, who are actually thinking um, they've, they've been in the States and talking about this problem with their children having great difficulty finding their first home, not being able to afford it. And while they're not that keen on, on you know, turning their, uh, turning their back, large back garden into a kind of a, a Dallas-type situation mm. with everybody living in houses um, around, around them, uh, they have seen some really nice what they call small houses, little houses or something, and and they're very tiny, but they would be perfectly fine for each of their children to live in uh, at the back of the garden, 
you know, properly plumbed and, and lit and everything else. Um, but there's absolutely no way they would ever be able to get that kind of planning permission, mm. not just from the state, but also or for the local authority, but also because they know their neighbours who wouldn't even see it because everybody's got lots of trees would object absolutely and, and, and tie up the process so much. And they're, they're, they're really despairing about... I want to help my child, but the, you know the supply problem is so acute in this neighborhood. Um, now, uh, you know, let, let's not talk about really wealthy neighborhoods. But let's talk about ordinary. Just your modest, yeah, 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 modest neighborhoods out in the suburbs. Um, people who are raised there, who have their families there, who have their sports clubs and their schools there, cannot live in what once upon a time was a very modest kind of Dublin suburban area, West West Dublin, when. You know, properties were going for under a hundred thousand and are now going for a half a million and more. So, I just, I just think that we have to address the the supply problem, but maybe be a little bit more creative about letting people come up with their own solutions. It doesn't mean that that little house that you could build for forty grand or thirty grand off the plans that you've gotten in the states uh, couldn't be pulled down at some stage when the crisis is over. But okay. we don't give those kind of creative solutions any kind of traction, which is unfortunate. Do we need to, Frank, be a little bit more creative? Allow the kids to build in the backyard. I'm not sure about that. I mean, you know, my experience in that generally is that raises other problems then. You have schooling problems, you have uh, transport issues, for example, you have parking issues in neighbourhoods in Dublin, for example. You know, so what are they allowed to build there? Is, is there enough space to get cars in? And that becomes an issue for neighbours, for example. So it's more complex than that. I think the big issue is that a state needs to have a role in this process and that you have two suppliers of property. You have the private sector, you have a, a government sector mm. that's also involved. And that raises other issues in terms of, you know, European Union and funding and all that stuff. And, well, but that's I why think, we don't have this, because government does have such a say in all of this, yeah, Frank. But I, I mean, think, it's but their I think, rules that have stopped so much I, of the development that's really necessary. I understand. But the issue is that this is also an issue in Holland. This is an issue in Germany, in Berlin, a couple of weeks ago mm. in protests, for example. So there is an issue here... And I think governments tend to move once they recognise it's a broad problem. And we have urbanisation happening at a very fast clip. And the issue around that is how are we allowing properties to be purchased, who's purchasing, who's developing them. It's a supply issue at the end of the day. And you will always have these. You know, if you have a, a sudden shift, Dublin's been very successful at bringing in international investments. But most of those people who run those companies are coming back and saying we have an issue with the supply of property. So okay. I think it's a more complex we're, issue. We're back to the supply again. I want to talk very specifically about getting mortgage ready and actually going about applying for mortgages because um, we have a huge amount of kind of requests in from people in a very yeah. general sense to the station. So it's very much a reflection, I suppose, of who's actually listening to us today as well. Can I ask you, Carl Dieter, I suppose, just first of all, um, when I to talk about myself in the third person, if I'm getting ready for a mortgage, which I would be thinking about at some stage, I'd like to think. But what are the kind of things that you need to be doing, first of all, to get mortgage ready? See, I, I used to think it was only when I went to parties that people would punch me up for free, for free advice. You know, that's, I know what it's like now, getting it on the national airways too. Okay, look, there's a few simple things that I would always suggest that people try to do. The first thing is spend less than you earn. You've got to have positive money you can describe that as savings you excess whatever it is you're going to need to demonstrate that you can actually uh, afford the loan that you're thinking about taking out to decide what that loan amount is you can use mortgage calculators you can speak to whoever you get your advice from and then you can look at what the rates will be and then what the payment will be if it was stress tested that's all stuff to do with lending you might not know how to do that if you don't get some help mm. all right once you realize what your magic number is uh, you'll need to demonstrate that you've got enough of a deposit. Uh, 
I saw an article during the week where Charlie Weston was saying that, uh, you know, almost half of buyers were looking to the bank of mom and dad to, to help them buy a home. If you are getting help, it's still a case that you have to demonstrate that ability to repay. Um, and so that's really the main thing is don't don't take out loans. Don't have, you know, a deposit saved and then dip into some of it really quick. A lot of people do these things where they say, yeah, I've got 40000 saved. That's enough for a deposit. And then they spend half of it on a wedding. And then they wonder why a lender is looking at them saying, we, we were going to say yes, but now we're not. Or they say, look, we're buying this new house. It's 20 miles away. And they go and buy a new car. And then the, from having done that lending, it, it wrecks their ability to draw down a loan. So make sure you're getting some common sense advice that, that fits you because, like, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all version. Just just on that point about spending less than you're earning, how much should you be spending? It's a bit like the pension question where you ask, how, how much should you, should you be putting aside into your pension every month? But how much, Frank Conway, should you be putting aside for, for the house part good, of it? Good question. I, I use a very simple rule, and that is generally, you know, on, on the take-home pay, I apply what we call a 50-30-20 rule. Very simple you know, 50% going to your life needs, maybe roughly 30% to your life wants. You've got to live a bit, you know, so and it's all, not all about austerity. And then roughly 20% into savings. Now, the savings are interesting because first-time buyers need to come up with 10% deposit on the property. So most of them can work that out. And lenders will generally say, yeah, you can get some help from parents, but you will need to see maybe roughly half of that saved along the way. So the question ultimately then is, um, do you have a good credit history, for example? That's the other pillar of getting a mortgage. So you need the equity in the property, you need the income to be demonstrated, for example, that you're managing that. So don't take the car loan out a week before, you know, and perhaps also maybe don't switch jobs or, you know, and I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but, you know, there is an issue around that, for example, where there might be a stipulation where somebody might have moved or maybe a partner has moved and they need to work through the probationary period. And then the 20% of savings, I would say, some of that should be still going towards your pension. Don't put it all into property. Take advantage of that compounding. Okay, and so then, your 20% can be made up of the pension house deposit and yeah and you can float that you know so in other words I would say to first time first time buyer you know if you're telling me that you can't save for a for a new home the 10% deposit mm-hmm. really go through the, the income and expenditure from at least three months because you know I had a case uh, about two years ago uh, this girl is spending maybe three and a half grand on city parking per, per year because she really not liked to show the new car to her work colleagues. So that was an emotional expression in terms of how she was doing. So broadly, you might say, well, the big goal right now is I want to save 20000 or 30000 in three years. Well, that's a mathematical mm-hmm. thing, and you need to make sure that there's enough money coming in and not too much going out. So you might want to hold back on the pension, although I don't tend to recommend it. I would say to somebody, take advantage of that if you're in your 20s as well. So you're balancing all this out but you need to certainly probably have at least 20% cushion you know, on an ongoing basis. Okay, Jill Kirby, I've already been told I need 20% of my <laughs> wages need to start being put aside. So what other uh, nuggets well, are you going to throw at me? One of the things that you should realise too is that the lender is absolutely going to check your credit record, but they might very well check to see how well you've been paying your rent as well. Mm. I mean, you know, you're saying to them, I've, I've, paying 1600 a month for yeah, rent. Yeah, and this is the thing that really catches people. Yeah, and they'll say, okay, I, I think they'd be impressed by that if you haven't missed any payments, if you've never been late. If your landlord is happy with you as a tenant, well, then they're going to be happy with you as a borrower too. So you really have to be very careful that you don't start screwing around uh, your your landlord, however horrible a person that might be, and how he hasn't fixed the boiler and so you with, withheld the rent. Don't do that because that's that's going to mark be a mark against you. 
Um, the other thing, too, is that you obviously, I mean, shop around for the best rates. I mean, suddenly your bank is saying, oh, we think you're absolutely wonderful. You've, you've gone to them exploring the idea of, of renting, mm. uh, of, of borrowing from them. And they're saying, oh, this is what we all have. You know, you're, you, you could be so pleased to hear that somebody's going to lend you this money for this house or apartment that you really want, that you don't bother to step back and either get some advice or go to somebody like Carl or, or Frank and say, listen, am I really getting the best deal here? Bonkers.ie, uh, they have all the rates listed. They keep that uh, they, they keep that information up to date about both the variable and the, the fixed rates. So okay. do not plunge yourself into this. If a, if a bank ever comes to you positively disposed about anything, then chances yes. are you don't need them. <laughs> okay. It, it, was, it was like <laughs> that expression that Mark right. Twain had, that banks give you an umbrella when it's sunny and take them mm. away when it rains. So if your bank is saying, we'd love to, to have you sit down and talk about a mortgage... Oof. chances are you'd probably get that mortgage The anywhere. other thing too, and, and you guys really know more because I've read all your articles about it, Carl, um, and, and heard you that talking makes, about That makes one of us. <laughs> no, no, no. This business about, I don't think the cashback offers are a very good idea either. I've looked into them myself and over the long term, they're more expensive. They they seem very seductive, don't they? You've finally gotten your, your loan and somebody is saying, we're going to get 2% back and that's three or 4,000 quid and you think, oh great, I can, I can you know, get the you know, get the furniture that we want, we can get the, the garden landscaped and everything. Don't do that. They this certainly is, do these kind of headline sure, initiatives but, grab your attention. Sure, but over sure. the long term, what you're doing is you're buying retail goods uh, over a long, long credit period. You know, mm. buy a house over 30 years. You don't buy a mm. garden installation well, over I've, 30 I've years. I've built calculators you know? to show how these things work, the effect of cash back or, or fixed rate versus variable rate calculator and things. We use them in work. And uh, the, the the frustration is, though, for a first-time buyer, because they struggle to, to get to the point of buying the home, is that when they see a cash back offer, they're thinking, okay, that's all my furnishings taken care mm. of. And Jill is absolutely right. You do. You pay for it. There's no such thing as a, a free lunch. Um, so Save up you, for you, that. Do it as you can afford well, it. That, that's the thing, the, the, though, is, is, it, is it people are then stuck between the situation of saying, do we save up even further? Do we move in and not have, you know, yes, furniture? Yes, you, you live in, you, you don't have the furniture. But that's, but you that's know? the thing. People um, have different how expectations. How badly do I need today. the bed? Can I ask you, Frank, about <laughs> some of the campaigns had the idea of, um, very specifically, I thought it was a good target market campaign where it was about, you know, get yourself mortgage ready. And some, some of the different financial institutions were running offers um, about saving for the Deposit. So mm-hmm. it was about maybe putting 200 quid aside a month and mm-hmm. but you only got X amount of that back in terms of um, obviously you to draw it down from that particular bank. There's loads of caveats then that come with these. Yeah, I mean, just on the issue of the cashbacks, for example, you could mathematically say, yeah, you know, it does cost you more money, for example. But you could also say that were they then to go back to maybe a credit union or a bank to borrow the money for the, for the furnishings, would it cost more or less? Or could mm-hmm. they overpay that mortgage? And these are other things you can do with a mortgage as well. So, yeah, on the face of it, you know, if you borrow for more money or you pay, or you pay a higher rate of interest and you get a cash back, you're paying more for that mortgage. What I've heard a lot of first-time buyers say to me is, yeah, we know that. But what we really want is this an emotional driver. Mm-hmm. You're offering to give me ten or 15000 and I, I don't want to have to go back out and borrow that money. So mm-hmm. first-time buyers, are fairly, a lot of them are fairly well-informed. There's others that they want somebody to help them out with the numbers there themselves. But they'll often say, this is much cheaper and quicker for me, perhaps, 
if I used an overpayment calculator. So there's really, you know, it's it's okay. it's it's horses for courses, I think. I want to come back to the credit rating stuff because I think that's a huge yeah. issue for people when they're going about getting the mortgage. And we asked people in advance of today's programme, listeners, to submit questions that they have about this. Yeah. Uh, one of which that came up, and it actually came up the last time we looked at this issue as well, um, uh, uh, they're online um, direct debits to things yeah. like... Mm. Gambling accounts, lotto yeah. accounts, this kind of stuff. Like, how 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 much of an issue is that kind of stuff? <laughs> well, the credit rating itself is central, you know, and it's probably less central in Ireland. So, to give you an idea, there's two things happening with credit ratings. First of all, the history of the there's two credit reports out there. Anybody can get a copy of their Irish Credit Bureau, ICB.ie. It costs just over six euro, and you can get a free copy of your central credit register per year. Now. Often what comes up is people will say, well, my partner's business went out of business. Uh, they have an issue with revenue, for example. Is that showing up? The answer to that one is no. Now, there's a 24-month rolling history on credit reports. Now, what's been happening, is, and there's also a five-year history on the credit themselves. Now, there's a couple of anomalies happening with the central credit register where old debts that had kind of gone off the ICB are beginning to show back up again. So there's a couple of anomalies there. What I would say to somebody is, if you had a debt... You know, you need to make sure you pay it off on time within the, the repayment periods. And, and if there is an issue in your credit report, but maybe get a copy of that before you apply for a mm-hmm. mortgage because you want to see that. Credit bureaus are also moving towards what we call credit scoring. We don't quite have it in Ireland officially yet. It's under the radar. And that's where this, the credit register is becoming mm-hmm. a much more central piece of information about you. It's your most important profile. Now, lenders themselves will say, look, you've got the savings. You've been paying the landlords. You've been saving up 20% per month. That's a good discipline. Those would be the main drivers. But the credit history does remain for quite a long period of time. So I would advise anybody to get a copy of that beforehand with the CCR or the ICB. And anything yeah. that looks unusual or that you think, gosh, I don't remember that and yeah. whatever, challenge them. Now, you're going to, to go oh, to the, yeah. you're going to have to go to the credit yep. issuer to get it changed. The, the credit bureau itself does not change yep. things. Uh, it is the person who's, who's set your, okay. report. Your, your point about account activity, though, like if, if, if you have some gambling happening, it's about how much it happens. So, I mean, if you have 100 euro going to Paddy Power, you're in Cheltenham, I don't think anyone's going to look at mm. that. Yep. And, and the mm. fact is, the truly problematic things in life, they don't happen in your bank account. Like, no one pays drug mm. dealers by direct debit. So, it's it's the kind of thing that you've just got to use your common sense. Yeah. One very specific question. Um, how much do you really lose by having kids in advance of seeking a mortgage? In terms of your ability to borrow? Yeah. I guess you probably put a figure about 60,000 per child. <laughs> So this is yeah, a deterrent then, is it? It does no, reduce well, the borrowing if, capacity. Yeah. yeah. It's a deterrent if your whole objective in life is to borrow <laughs> lots of money, but kids are great, you know, so it's just... <laughs> well, just, just to give us a bit of detail, Frank, on that, because I think people are surprised by the fact that this does actually affect their application. Well, lots of things affect the application because ultimately it's down to the repayment capacity of the individual. Do they have enough money coming in, number one? And what are the factors in there? You know, raising a family is a wonderful thing, but it does cost money and that will reduce the borrowing capacity of the individual. Um, switching jobs, for example, is a great thing, but that does reduce, for example, the likelihood that the mortgage will then be drawn down. Having a really nice car is a wonderful thing. You may need it for work, mm. but that does reduce the borrowing capacity of the borrower. A car, maybe with a repayment of five or six hundred euro per month, will reduce your borrowing capacity maybe sixty or seventy thousand. So all of these factors are brought in specifically, you know, to ensure that the individual can continue to repay the mortgage. If they have a credit union loan, it used to be a case that that didn't show up in the ICB or the CCR. It does now, all it does of now. that shows up now. Mm-hmm. So people have this 
feeling that perhaps, oh, we'll borrow in another place. All of this debt shows, any debt over 500 euros shows up. I'm just going to take a very short break. I have a couple of other questions, just specific questions I want to come back to in a moment. But you're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to the final part of today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're turning our attention today to the Irish mortgage market. Our panel still with us today, financial advisor and founder of MoneyWiz, Frank Conway, Carl Dieter from Irish Mortgage Brokers and also personal finance journalist with the Sunday Business Post, Jill Kirby. I just want to go back to a couple of kind of very specific questions, particularly with regards to people's accounts when they're looking for mortgages and uh, their personal credit rating and and, and that kind of thing. Um, Just a couple of specific questions on we talked a few moments ago about the effect of children and I take it that you're better off to buy the house before you have the kids in terms of getting your borrowing from, from what you're telling me. But um, also just things like your your occupation and the kind of work that you do. How much of an effect does that have on your on your borrowing capacity? It has a big effect. Um, you know, if you're self-employed, you must produce a number of years worth of back accounts. Um, they want to make sure that whatever work that you're doing, whether you're a freelance or whether you have your own business, is secure enough, is producing enough income that you are still going to be able to afford this loan over the long term. This is a 25 or a 30 year investment that the bank is kind of making in you as well. And they've had enough experience of, of bad performing debts that they're very conscious of that. They're also very conscious of you know, that work is very tenuous these days. So it might not even just be for the self-employed. It could be for somebody who's had, you know, employment mm. issues uh, with the gig economy, that you're a consultant, you're moving around, you you have moved around, but that's the nature of the job now too. So it is going to have an impact. Um, I think it'll be very interesting though, I don't know if you guys have had any experience of this, to see if the banks are actually realising that this is a reality now for lots of people. Yeah, there is no fort unless you're a civil servant, unless yeah, you've got an and absolute... And that's the thing, I suppose. Yeah, sure. And, and, and that's why they like lending to civil servants. They earn 40% more than the average person in the private sector and they have a lot more job security. Even if they're borrowing a little bit later and the amount is a great deal, you know, once they're once they're uh, retired, even people are borrowing as first time borrowers, and they're at thirty in their mid thirties now, maybe even at forty. But the difference between, you know, that person and somebody in the in the private sector is that they're they're on an indexed pension. I All mean, I want to know is, is still do, going do they to like journalists? <laughs> well, their pension income is even going to go up. I mean, if you're if you're borrowing a great deal of money at thirty five. Um, and you're looking for a long-term mortgage, I think you're probably going to need a higher down okay. payment because you're not going to get it. Just on those, uh, briefly, um, Frank and, uh, and Carl, just on those occupational um, hazards, I suppose, or how much of a hazard is your occupation? Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, what lenders are really looking for is the individual, have they gone permanent or is there a history of repaying? Because they do lend to people who are self-employed, mm-hmm. for example. So that is a very precarious, precarious industry. But they're looking for a couple of years of audit accounts, accounts that prove that there's a reliability of income, enough to repay the mortgage as well itself and then to repay the debt. So journalists, absolutely, yeah. The issue ultimately is, well, is there, has there been certainty of that income coming in and is there likely to be certainty of that income going up? Because, you know, the day after you get the mortgage, for example, you could lose your job. So, you know, we look for certainty beforehand and then after that, you know, anything will happen. Just on a one final point on that, um, is it a good idea if you're somebody that's always lived at your parents and perhaps you're paying a minimal amount of rent to draw down a car loan, even if you have savings, just to prove you have some sort of repayment capacity? No. 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 That's a dumb idea. Don't no. do that. No. 
And it doesn't need to be expanded upon. Don't do it. <laughs> okay, just to end with that. Okay. Um, I want to ask about some of the new players that are kind of emerging into the market um, before we wrap up today, just in terms of people going about now and getting and looking and applying for mortgages. I suppose the some discussion about the post office and credit union as well um, entering into the mortgage field. Yeah, you do actually have a few new lenders um, to, to an extent. You've got the revamped Pepper which is now called Finance Ireland. They they are really good for certain types of borrowers. Uh, you'd have the post office who say they're coming in. And then you do have credit unions who are, are, are providing a really important service at the lower end of the mortgage market in particular. Uh, so that will all make a difference. I think in Ireland in the future, the, the big challenge will be to actually attract uh, lenders from around Europe because there is a European mortgage directive. In theory, you should be able to get a German mortgage in Ireland. I mean, that's the way things are headed. It just hasn't gotten there yet. But when you're looking around, just remember that all the lenders will actually treat the same person differently. So although you have mechanical rules like three and a half times income, if you went to every single lender and asked them what they would give you as a loan, you're going to get a different rate from each of them and actually a different loan amount from each of them. Because some, for instance, say if you had 5% of your income was overtime, some of them will take all of that as being part of your income. Others will say we'll only accept a third yeah. of that and or half of that. Be, yeah, your overtime could be cut back. Sure. So, well, it, but they'll still factor it into what they'll what they'll let you borrow. And commissions and, and bonuses for salespeople and too. The, yeah, and it's, it's the same in, in that respect. So the, the difficulty is each lender has a different way of doing it and it's hard because it's like going on a single date and then deciding whether to get married or not. They only get one chance to, to really get to know you in a paper sense and then they're taking a risk on you for, you know, a couple of decades. Mm. And and that's why it's a hard situation to get through. It's meant to be. Don't lose sight of that. But also always, always get more than one opinion. Obviously, mm. I'm a broker. I am vested interest. I think people should go to brokers. But at the same time, if you're not into that, at least research the market and, and do the hard job of slogging around to the different lenders okay. yourself to find out what the answers are. Just on a brief note for both Frank and, and Jill before we wrap, just on that idea of the kind of new and emerging lending uh, markets that are out there and players. In yeah, the field. it's very, very slow. I mean, compared to where we were, you know, and I hate going back to 10, 12 years ago, but there were 17 lenders in the market. There's three or four really active lenders in the market. Mm. Anything else that's being done, the credit unions are doing lower loan amounts, for example. You know, they're not quite the, the first-time buyer market. They're not quite up there. Council buyouts are big with credit unions. Mm, and In like some that. cases, yeah. So, but the, the main players right now are, you know, the main names. So it's Bank of Ireland, uh, AIB, it's Parliament TSB, it's KBC, uh, EBS is out there as well. Um, so those are the main ones. The new entrants will take time to prove themselves and they'll need funding behind them. And so they're not going to make a massive difference, but they're there and they, they can often uh, provide a service to people okay. who might be on the margins. We'll give the last word to you, Jill, on this. I, I wouldn't hold your breath uh, in, uh, about European lenders coming here for the moment. We still have a huge debt legacy that has to be sorted out. Arrears are coming down quite quite dramatically now, <clears throat> but they are still highly significant and they're going to look at the fact that we just don't repossess houses from people who have been living in them for five, seven years and not paying a penny uh, against their mortgage. So they're they're not going to be that quick until, until that that legacy debt problem is sorted it's out. It's certainly a topic as well for another day. I'm going home to work out what 20% of my annual <laughs> income is this morning. But my thanks to you all for joining us today. Frank Conway, financial advisor with, and also founder of MoneyWiz, Carl Dieter from Irish Mortgage Brokers, and Jill Kirby, personal finance journalist with the Sunday Business Post. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or search for News Talks Between the Lines on iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team, Elaine 
Power and Stephen Jordan. Um, we'll be back again, of course, with Between the Lines next Saturday evening from 8 and I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday at 6am. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a great day.